everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Owl Once Was Lost podcast. We are the podcasting tool to the Owl Once Was Lost Missing Persons phone application. Please hit the uh, subscribe button if you've downloaded this first of a four-part series. We'd really appreciate your support for this very important companion to the Owl Once Was Lost Missing Persons phone app that you can get on iOS or Android We've had a ton of people downloading, so we're super happy about that. Also, Patreon support coming in, so we really appreciate that as well, supporting our efforts and being a part of the solution. So please download the Once Was Lost Missing Persons phone app. I'll put a link to that in the show notes for you, especially if you have children, elderly adults, uh, grandparents. It doesn't matter. It's it's really for everybody. Uh, God forbid something happens. You've got a tool right there that will help tremendously. And it works very, very simply. The the more people that have it, the more chances we have of finding that person within the first crucial hour. So it's really an epidemic. Uh, You know, there's over 800,000 children go missing in the U.S. alone each year. And a lot of these can not just be prevented, but solved by using an app such as the Owl Once Was Lost phone app. And again, it's simplicity of design. We also encourage you to please go to our Patreon page and pledge to help our efforts. So you would go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and then a forward slash once was lost altogether. So that's O-N-C-E-W-A-S-L-O-S-T. Just pledge $3 a month. Uh, that, that would help us uh, to maintain the app and keep the podcast running There are some higher tiers that have merch that are included, and we did have a couple of people come in at those levels, and they're going to be getting some cool merch. So if there is a missing person uploaded to the phone app, we have a real shot, like I said, at finding that individual within that first crucial hour. If they are not found in that first hour, there's only a 6% shot at actually finding this person alive, and that's unacceptable, as I always say. So Let's get this episode started. Uh, this is as told by Anne Louise Bardoch concerning John Benet Ramsey. The Christmas night murder of a six-year-old beauty pageant winner, John Benet Ramsey, in Boulder, Colorado, shocked the country and turned her millionaire parents, John and Patsy, into suspects. With sources deep inside the investigation and among Ramsey relatives and friends, Anne Louise Bardoch, reveals the story behind the dreadful crime and the bitter split between the DA's office and the police department. Patrol officer Richard French got to the home of John and Patsy Ramsey in the Tony neighborhood adjacent to the Chattacaqua, did I pronounce that right? (laughs) Chattacqua Park in Boulder, Colorado. I probably flubbed that, no big deal. Within seven minutes of Patsy Ramsey's 911 call reporting that their six-year-old daughter, child beauty pageant winner John Benet, had been kidnapped. It was 5.52 a.m. on December 26th, and the distraught and weeping mother, a former Miss West Virginia and Miss America contender, let French in. Quote, John Ramsey directed me through the house and pointed out a three-page handwritten note, which was laid on the wooden floor just west of the kitchen area. Close quote, French reported. Subsequently, French told colleagues that he had been struck by how differently the two parents were reacting. While John Ramsey was cool and collected, explained the sequence of events to him, Patsy Ramsey sat in an overstuffed chair 
in the sunroom sobbing. Something seemed odd to French. And later he would recall how grieving mother's eyes stayed riveted on him. He remembered her gaze in her awkward attempt to conceal it, peering at him through splayed fingers held over her eyes, if you can picture that. Seven hours later, the strangled, bludgeoned body of the child was found in a storage room in the basement. French told fellow officers that he felt awful that he had not discovered it himself in his search of the house. For months, he berated himself as he relived every moment of his hours there. While Patsy had wept inconsolably, a dry-eyed John Ramsey had paced incessantly. Later, French recalled that the couple had barely spoken to or looked at each other. Though they were faced with the most calamitous tragedy of their lives, he did not see them consoling each other, but it was the image of Patsy weeping and watching him that haunted French especially after he learned that she had been sitting directly over the spotless, then 15 feet below where her child's body lay. The Ramseys with John Bonet and their son Burke had had Christmas dinner at the home of their best friends Priscilla and Fleet White Jr., a mile or so away from the house. After Ramsey had moved his computer company from Atlanta, Georgia to Boulder in 1991, the Whites and the Ramseys found that they had much in common. Fleet White was also a successful tycoon in the oil business. Both couples enjoyed sailing and had six-year-old girls with older brothers. Neither Patsy nor Priscilla worked, but both were committed volunteers. When John Ramsey had decided to throw his wife a surprise 40th birthday party a month earlier, on November 30th, he turned to Priscilla to organize the event at the Swank Brown Palace in Denver. According to police reports, the Ramseys arrived home from the White's about 10 p.m., and then at 5.55 a.m., the Whites were awakened by John Ramsey, who told them to hurry right over. At 6.20, the Whites were there, joined by other friends, John and Barbara Fernie, and later by the Ramsey's minister, Father Har- Roll Haverstock. Several uniformed policemen assisted Rick French until 8.10 a.m. when Detective Linda Arndt arrived. Arndt's supervisor, Detective Sergeant Larry Mason, would get to the house later that day. The initial team assumed that the troubled, affluent couple were victims, not potential murder suspects. They even summoned two victim advocates to the house to comfort them. Art, in particular, who was described by fellow officers as having bonded with Patsy Ramsey, made several critical and possibly irreparable errors in judgment. The ransom note warned the couple not to contact the police, but to await a phone call between 8 and 10 that morning. Art wrote in his report that between 10.30 a.m. and noon, John Ramsey left the house to pick up the family mail, which she later saw him open and read. At 1 p.m. when no call had come, Art asked Ramsey and Fleet White to follow her into the kitchen. An investigator describes the scene. She said, I want you to search this house from top to bottom. She had barely finished speaking that when John Ramsey bolted from the kitchen and headed down to the basement. Fleet White told us that Ramsey went directly to a small broken window on the north side of the house and paused. Fleet said to Ramsey, hey, John, look at this. this. And John said, yeah, I broke it last summer. He wanted Fleet to see the window set up on an intruder theory, but no one but a small child or a midget could have crawled through that space. While Fleet is looking at the window, John disappeared down the hall directly to the little room where the body is. 
It's a huge basement with a lot of rooms and corridors, but Ramsey went directly to that room. He screamed and Fleet ran to him. White had previously peered down into the windowless storage room but had not seen the body. Lying on the cement floor was the lifeless John Benet, dressed in a white knit shirt and long underwear. There was duct tape over her mouth, a garrote made of white cord, and a broken artist paintbrush handle was around her throat, and there was cord around the wrist. The body was covered with a white blanket from her bed. Nearby was her red pageant nightgown, described by a relative as her favorite possession. Ramsey yanked the tape from her mouth, and according to the investigator, holding her with both hands around her at the waist, the way you would hold the doll, carried her upstairs and laid her on the hardwood floor in the living room. What was interesting was when Ramsey brought the body upstairs, he never cried, related a source present at the time. But when he laid her down, he started to moan while peering around to see who was looking at him. Linda Art lifted the child from the floor and placed her alongside the Christmas tree. Patsy collapsed right on top of John Benet, said the source. And then she got on her knees and screamed, Jesus, you raised Lazarus from the dead. Please raise my baby. Art asked Father Roll to gather everyone into a circle around the child and lead them in a prayer. Numb with grief and horror, they bowed their heads and said the Lord's Prayer. The following evening at the Fernie's house in South Boulder, Linda Arndt approached John Ramsey, but Ramsey's lawyer friend, Mike Bynum, cut off the conversation, telling Arndt that legal advisors had been retained to speak for the Ramseys. The next day, the police were informed that the Ramseys had nothing more to say and would answer no further questions. Although John Ramsey was a lifelong conservative Republican, he turned to Haddon, Morgan, and Foreman, a long, I'm sorry, law firm almost synonymous with Colorado's Democratic political machine. Take a look at their offices here in Denver, says Chuck Green, a columnist at the Denver Post, referring to the gated mansion that houses the firm. Then take a walk over to the governor's mansion a few blocks away and tell me which one is bigger, and I'll tell you which one is more powerful. During the 70s and 80s, Hal Haddon ran Gary Hart's campaigns for senator and was an advisor on his presidential campaign. Haddon became known as a power broker and a kingmaker. He had a reputation for socializing with clients such as Hunter S. Thompson, Governor Roy Romer, former Governor Richard Lamb, and Congressman David Skaggs are all political allies of Haddon's, as is Halleck's Hunter, Boulder's longtime district attorney. Haddon's partners, Brian Morgan and Lee Foreman, by arguing controversial intruder theory, won an acquittal in the celebrated 1980 trial of Lee Bibb Lindsley, who was accused of murdering her husband, a prominent Colorado pediatrician. Quote, on a ratio of 12 to 1, child murders are committed by parents or a family member, said FBI veteran Greg McCary. Ramsey decided that his wife should have her own lawyers, and he retained Patrick Burke and Patrick Furman. Within a week of the murder, a media consultant named Pat Corton was also brought aboard, later to be replaced by Rochelle Zimmer and Lori Wagner. In July, Denver's premier publicist, Charles Russell, was added to the payroll. In addition to his lawyer's team of private investigators, Ramsey retained the Denver firm of H. Ellis Armistead, as well as former FBI criminal profiler and two handwriting analysts. After the police tried to question Ramsey's first wife in Atlanta, he also hired a lawyer 
there named James Jenkins. Guys, these are a lot of lawyers, a lot of different uh, organizations I had never heard of when I, you know, originally came across the John Bonet case, like I'm sure a lot of you did that are a little bit older and can remember uh, this case when it first, you know, appeared. So comparisons are inevitable made to OJ Simpson, but John's, uh, John uh, Ramsey is far wealthier. And unlike the Simpson dream team, Ramsey's lawyers have sought invisibility. Ironically, two Simpson defenders, Barry Sheck and the forensic scientist Henry Lee, have made themselves available to the Boulder DA, some say in an effort to refurbish their post-Simpson image. The one press conference Haddon's team had permitted the Ramseys in the Boulder Marriott on May 1st was so elaborately orchestrated that it was called the Ramsey Infomercial by Denver Talk Radio host Peter Boyles. The Ramsey team of lawyers and publicists stood against a back wall, but the selected reporters had agreed not to question them. It was not the first time that a carefully packaged appearance had backfired. On Sunday, January 5th, media consultant Pat Corton had arranged to have a television crew outside St. John's Episcopal Church in Boulder. During the service, there was a special handout, a personalized for the Ramsey family offering prayers specifically for them, said a parishioner who was present. We were appalled because a lot of people had qualms about believing them to be at that time. Outside the church was a throng of photographers waiting to capture a sobbing patsy exiting on the arm of Barbara Fernie. They told, totally used the church as a photo opportunity, said the parishioner. The Ramsey's appearance on CNN in Atlanta and January 1st had also raised questions. Why would a grieving couple go on national television while refusing to speak to the police? What did John Ramsey mean by saying, I don't know if it was an attack on me, my company? Eight months after the murder, to the bafflement of the public, the FBI and the police, Haddon's team has been singularly, excuse me, singularly successful in dissuading Boulder DA Alex Hunter from filing charges. The public perception, whether true or not, is that Hal Haddon can knock out Alex Hunter blindfolded with his hands tied behind his back, said columnist Chuck Green. Hunter's team is led by a trial attorney, Peter Hofstrom, a former prison guard at San Quentin, who has worked with Hunter for 23 years. Trip Demuth, Hofstrom's handsome assistant, and Lou Smith, a retired homicide detective. The police followed up their initial ineptitude by rapidly assembling a group of six experienced detectives, led by Tom Wickman. They were Ron Gossage, Jane Harmer, Melissa Hickman, Steve Thomas, and Tom Trujillo. Hofstrom's and Wickman's teams are supposed to be working together in their high-security war room, but trust between the two is quickly shattered. Peter Boyles, who was daily coverage of the Ramsey case has won him national celebrity, has an admittedly personal interest. Pioneer talk radio host Alan Berg said his best friend and mentor was gunned down in 1984 by neo-Nazi thugs. Ramsey's lawyers Pat Burke and Lee Foreman represented two of the accused. Boyle says that Alex Hunter, whom he calls Monty Hall of Let's Make a Deal fame, has never met a criminal that he thinks is fit for jail. Chuck Green, who calls Hunter Mr. Plea Bargain, has savaged his office as the Hunter Ramsey team. During a three-hour interview with me in June, Alex Hunter, an affable man of 61, acknowledged that much of the Ramsey's post-murder behavior was unusual. No question about it. They lawyered up early on, he said. 
Normally, it is true, such victims throw themselves at the police and district attorney offering and begging for information. The fact that they do not cooperate is most compelling, but it is not really evidence. Hunter asked if I knew that Patsy Ramsey was a college graduate and had talented as a painter. He passed on the information that she ran the science fair at her son's school and that she had impressed lawyers with her outspokenness when she served on a recent jury. She was fused with, quote, John Bonet, said Hunter. It was more than mere love, as far as John Ramsey, when he referred to as Iceman. He wondered aloud whether someone as smart as Ramsey would write such a long note. Toward the end of our talk, he said, these are not bad people, then hastily added, of course, we know that good people can do bad things. When I asked Hunter whether pressure from the Haddon team had gotten to him, he said, I'm in the first year of my seventh term and I have zero interest in running for state dog catcher or a congressman. So the business about me sinking my political fortune is nonsense. I don't feel any intimidation. However, one insider said that Hunter is twice removed from the case and Hunter admits that he depends on Peter Hofstrom for his information. Quote, he's the only one that's keeping me advised. He's what I consider to be the lead guy. All right, everybody. So that's going to end the first part of this uh, four-part series on John Benet Ramsey. Please hit the five stars uh, for us for the review, write a written review if you like as well. But we need those five stars for the algorithm so that we can be found on iTunes. And then if you like to write anything you wish, uh, even advice, or if you just love the podcast the way it is, of course, we don't have a lot of uh, high-end production like most podcasts do, but you know that's what we're working to get to. And the way that we're going to do that is with your help through Patreon. Uh, we already have quite a bit of help that came in once I started to uh, talk about Patreon. So you would just go to patreon.com slash once was lost. That's O-N-C-E-W-A-S-L-O-S-T, once was lost. So patreon.com once was lost. We have a $3 tier. That's the one that we ask everybody to join with. It's, you know, it's barely anything and it would be going to helping to be part of the solution here and to help keep the app up to date and that we can continue to add more and more, <clears throat> excuse me, more and more options to it. And also for the podcast so that we can keep it, uh, keep it running and uh, God forbid anybody goes missing that, you know, we'd be in touch with the family in real time, getting even further detailed information that is over and above what was uploaded onto the OWL once was lost missing persons phone application that every single one of you needs to download and have on your phone. God forbid something does ever occur. All you do is just go to that app, upload the pertinent information and immediately People in your area are helping to search, um, and hopefully we can get your, say, your abducted child or missing child or an adult with Alzheimer's back to you and in your arms again, again, within that first crucial hour, because it really is that important. As I said before we started, only 6%, you know, are uh, ever recovered after that first hour alive. So that makes it vitally important. All right, everybody, thanks for your time, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.